Hello and welcome to Ocean Matters from the Bertarelli Foundation. I'm Helen Cheresky. For most of us, fish come from a shop. They're either laid out on ice in their full glory, neatly packaged in cans or shredded and hidden away inside fish fingers. But those fish have a backstory that's far harder to see. And we're hearing more and more about fishing that's causing huge problems. We're taking too much or exploiting workers at sea or damaging the seabed. There must be better ways to manage our fisheries. But what are they and what needs to change? Joining me to discuss all this are Professor Callum Roberts from the University of Exeter to explore the state of fisheries around the world. Dr. Asher DeVos, who's working out why people turn to illegal activities in the first place. And Anna Sanders from Global Fishing Watch to explain how technology can help us better manage fishing activity. The issue here is that we haven't reacted sufficiently to the damage being done by fishing to reverse it. If the market didn't exist, if people didn't want fish, if people didn't want seafood, then no one would have to go out and fish, whether it's illegal or legal. We've actually been able to identify using machine learning technology the actual vessel fishing activity. If you ask someone to draw a fishing boat, they'll probably draw a cute, colourful boat in a pretty harbour with two to three fishermen unloading their day's catch by lifting boxes of slippery silver onto the land. But mostly, these days, that's not how it works. We live in a world of huge food supply chains, of just-in-time delivery, of supermarkets and lorries and vast freezers. Fish is an incredibly popular food for Earth's population of nearly 8 billion humans, and demand just keeps on rising. In 2018, an estimated 179 million tonnes of fish was removed from the ocean, and 87% of that ended up on our plates. This is a hunt. A constant race where new fishing technologies and more crews chase fewer and smaller and younger fish there can be a lot of collateral damage, both to marine habitats and entire ecosystems. And over the centuries, our fishing has left a huge trail of destruction. There are already some ambitious goals for looking after our seas better. The Global Ocean Alliance 30 by 30 initiative aims to protect at least 30% of the global ocean by 2030. But we are still some way off reaching that target. And although there are some success stories, the overall trend lines are worrying. The solutions aren't simple, and they don't include just stop fishing. In 2018, more than 20 million people were employed in aquaculture and 39 million in fisheries. And there's a huge variety in the jobs those people are doing and the way that fishing is done. We need to take care of our people as well as our fish. But how do we manage this balance? Professor Callum Roberts from the University of Exeter uses science to make the case for stronger protection for marine life at both national and international levels. Having studied the impacts of both historic and modern fishing, he started by explaining the difference between a good and a bad fishery. Well, a good fishery is one where you're not taking more fish than are being produced by a population. So this is sustainable over the long term. 
But a bad fishery is one where you're taking more than a fish population is producing, and that's essentially unsustainable. There are also bad fisheries that are outside regulation and the law, and they're known as IUU fisheries or illegal, unregulated and unreported. They're going under the radar. We don't know how much fish is being caught and landed in these ways. It's very hard to get a good estimate of it. And so those fisheries operating in a clandestine way or operating in ways that are outside uh, the view of the regulators, you know, say because somebody's catching fish for personal consumption at home, by not being counted against what's being taken from the sea, we can underestimate the, the take of fish, which means we can overestimate how much there is still there to be caught. That drives unsustainability, essentially. And are there species which are just almost impossible to fish sustainably? And I'm thinking of species that have extremely long lifespans or that are really sensitive to to any catch at all. I think there's a good adage that never eat anything that gets to be older than your grandparents. And there are many fish out there that live extraordinarily long lives. And the orange ruffy, for example, is a deep sea fish. It lives around sea mounts. It doesn't become reproductively mature until 20s to 30s and it can live for 150 or even 200 years. Perhaps 1% of the population every year could be taken sustainably and so fisheries just cannot uh, operate like that. They take far too much and as a consequence the uh, population crashes and we've seen that many times over around the world that they simply can't sustain themselves with almost any level of fishing pressure. You've studied the fisheries around Europe. What are the trends over time? We're not doing as badly as we used to, say, a few decades ago. The 1990s, that low point, came as the consequence of 200 years of increasing intensities of exploitation of fisheries. You know, if you roll the clock back to the beginning of the 19th century, when fisheries first began to industrialise, Then people were catching fish using very low-impact methods. Uh, Small nets were towed behind sailing trawlers, for example. People would catch a lot of fish using hook and line and uh, set nets. But over the course of decades and centuries, we've increased the intensity and sophistication of the means by which we extract fish. And in doing so, we've begun to cause more and more damage. We've depleted fish populations and the fishing industry has always responded to falling abundances of fish by figuring out better ways of catching them. But eventually you run out of fish and that's uh, the point when everyone recognizes that there's horrible overfishing going on. We're now catching around 80 to 90 million metric tons a year from all over the world. However, unregulated catches, uh, illegal catches are not recorded in there. Animals that are caught by people for their own personal consumption are not recorded in there. And when you estimate how many more fish are being caught than the FAO figures reveal, it's about 50% more. And when you add in those figures, what you also see is that the, the trend is not one of stability, but of decline. And since 1996, Overall, wild fish landings have been falling by about a million metric tons per year. I find the amount of fish being taken out of the sea 
staggering. And the idea it's 50% more than we officially know about is even more staggering. How much is the problem complicated by the fact that we can't just see whether there are lots of fish or not? That's right. And uh, out of sight, out of mind is the old phrase. And and I think that's very true of uh, the problems that the ocean has. The issue here is that we haven't reacted sufficiently to the damage being done by fishing to reverse it. We've simply allowed fishing to go on intensively just by moving on to other species or by fishing somewhere else. We've reached the end of that road, so we have to try and improve sustainability of fisheries and recover the things that have been lost or damaged. Well, there's also a very important point here, which is that, you know, currently there are, there are fishing communities who do rely on fish. If, if we all just stopped eating fish tomorrow, that's also got a lot of problems associated with it. How do we balance the, the sort of human cost with the, the scientific case that says uh, the best thing would just be to stop fishing? Well, I think one of the things we have to do is to reallocate fisheries from these big industrial players. Many countries are kind of exporting their industrial fleets to the waters of developing countries and they're taking excessive quantities of fish and that's having an impact on the livelihoods uh, and the ability of people to feed themselves who are using uh, small boats close to the coast, traditional fishing methods. And so those industrial fisheries really need to be brought under control if people are going to get more out of fisheries for their livelihoods. So this all sounds very serious and we're here at a point with more tools in our toolbox than ever before to deal with this problem. So what's your feeling about the future? Do you think there's any chance of turning this around? Or do you think that this is just going to spiral down the plug hole now? Fisheries is a problem that we do have solutions for. We know that if we fish less, then fish populations will begin to recover. And by recovering, they may become more productive, so we may be able to catch more. We also need to use less destructive fishing methods to catch fish. We've been going around um, willy-nilly thinking it's fine to trash the ecosystem just to extract a few cod, for example. It isn't. We also need to waste less because there's a huge wastage in fisheries. You know, huge amounts of fish are thrown away. They're, They're left dying on the seabed. And if we were to find less wasteful ways to catch fish, then we wouldn't need to fish as much. And then finally, we need to protect more because those protected areas are essential reservoirs of fish in the ocean. They're areas where the habitat can recover, where big old animals that are the most reproductively active can sustain large populations that will replenish fisheries within the protected areas and far beyond. And if we put together that package of measures, then we can solve the problem of overfishing. Callum Roberts from the University of Exeter. So change is clearly needed when it comes to how we fish and how often. Part of the solution is always going to be better regulation. But it's one thing to have rules and quite another to monitor and enforce those rules. So we can't discuss fishing without facing up to illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing. That's the sort of thing that includes equipment that's unregulated, catching fish that are too small, catching fish outside of the designated season, or even going into other people's territories and taking fish from there. But fundamentally, people probably won't break the rules unless they feel it's better than the alternative. We need to consider the realities of human lives around the world to ask why people fish when they shouldn't. That's a question that Dr. Asher DeVos, the founder and executive director of Ocean Swell, has been asking fishermen in Sri Lanka. 
what we don't realize is there's lots of drivers that drive illegal fishing or poaching. So it could be economic. In many cases, it could be that it's their only source of income and they have families to feed. But then there are also social reasons why they do it. So it can be anything from the fact that there's a perception that there's higher value fish available than in their own waters. So in the case of the research we did, which was led by PhD student Claire Collins from the University of Exeter, one of the key findings was that people would take these giant risks, cross borders and go fish in other territories because there were more shark there. Some of them do it out of tradition. They're like, you know, our grandfathers used to fish there, so we go back. There are perceptions around the fact that, you know, shark meat lasts longer. There's also social ties, right? Now, these communities don't work in isolation. That's something we have to remember. There might be social ties where you have crew that work on, say, my boat will work on someone else's boat next time. So they carry that information. There's this information transfer that's also really important. So there's loads of different ways in which these social drivers play a part. And of course, there's that incentive, right? Like they do want to make money in the end, right? So they are important for us to consider in when we think about how do we resolve some of these problems. There's people's individual decisions, but they exist within a bigger environment. And, you know, you've said that poaching is illegal. um, And yet there is a lot of it going on. What's the bigger picture here that means that poaching is so common? In many cases, the ocean feels like a free-for-all, right? It's the tragedy of the commons. It's this wide open space where we have drawn boundaries, which you can see on physical maps, but they don't really exist as physical boundaries in the ocean. People will go out there and in these vast open spaces, enforcement can be quite difficult. So when there's a huge demand for fish and this demand for fish and seafood is growing, right? So this is a market-driven action, then what you get is these fishers will skirt the law to pursue higher catch. They take advantage of, say, patchy regulations, which exist when you go further offshore, when you go further away from very populated areas. So you have this low risk, high return activity. But really, the core of this is the market, right? If the market didn't exist, if people didn't want fish, if people didn't want seafood, then no one would have to go out and fish, whether it's illegal or legal. And that is something we have to keep in mind is that we're all kind of part of this problem. And so it's not about vilifying and pointing fingers and saying, oh, the fishermen are taking all the fish out of our oceans. It is really starting to reflect on what is my consumer behavior that allows for this to happen. If we want people to move away from those jobs, what are the alternatives? You can't tell someone to stop using a particular piece of equipment if we're not saying, oh, but here's a better option. So why don't you switch over? You can't just say stop. And that that's really what a lot of the time that's what we do. And that's not a successful way of shifting things. Fishing is one of those activities where you could go out once this week, you could go out twice, you could go out for 30 days or 60 days. Um, And so if you can achieve the same results within a shorter amount of time, why wouldn't you? How, How does that work? Yeah, so that's a great question. And you know, what I want to bring focus to is the work that we've been doing is working with illegal fishing boats that go out of Sri Lanka. The case that we're looking at in our research is an illegal fishery that's actually using smaller boats. And they're going out for weeks on end, right? There'll be crews of about six people on a boat about 15 meters long. And they'll be out there eating rice and lentils and any fish that they catch. That's their kind of meal for weeks on end. It's not a luxurious lifestyle. And it's certainly a high risk 
kind of job that they're doing. But they are attracted by the fact that there's a prospect of catching more shark, which is a high value species in this marine protected area. If you think about it, if you can find like 60 shark in a space, the area of like a king size bed versus 60 shark in the area the size of 20 soccer fields or football pitches, which would you choose? It's more efficient to go for the higher concentration, smaller space. And so we have to recognize that this action is also driven by this need for efficiency and economy to save money and to save time. And they're already spending a lot of time at sea and away from their families. And so they want to cut down that time. So this makes sense to them. One of the many things I like about your work is that you're actually listening to people, listening to the people on the ground. But that that is hard because they have got every reason not to trust you. They are told what to do by people who want to take away their livelihoods, who want to take things away, who want to stop them doing taking the best option they have. And, and I guess you sort of represent that. How do you start to have productive conversations? So when I first learned about this research that was about to take place and led by Claire, you know, I approached and I said, look, you're working in Sri Lanka you need to have a Sri Lankan team because if you want to talk to people, you have to speak the language. And I, when I say language, I don't just mean the language. There are so many facets to that. It was like probably the best advice I've ever given anyone because in the first week, we assembled an amazing team of young researchers who went out with her. In the first week, the fishermen basically looked at her and of course she stands out. She's a foreigner. They were like, we're not answering these surveys. We're not answering your questions until she goes away. And a lot of these fishermen have been told by foreigners that they shouldn't and it's not okay. And what they're doing is wrong. And it's this negative messaging. And what we wanted was we really just wanted an honest conversation. And so for us to have that, we did have to go with the, right? Only the local team goes out there and has these conversations. And it really is a painstaking job because it the most important thing is building trust. And that takes time. It takes a couple of years of just listening for them to know that people care more than just extracting information and for them to know that people want to actually make change that is not about destroying their lives, but trying to use what they have to say, their insight and their experiences to try to do something better. And I think that's really important. So on a big picture with poaching, there's obviously a lot of work that can be done just by talking to people. But once you've done the talking... What happens next? What mutual agreement can you get to, which, which means things might get better in the future? A lot of the time, the fishermen, there's a very low perception of risk when they go into these areas. Some fishermen be like, oh yeah, the fine is like $0. And then another fisherman be like, it's $15,000. Or one fisherman would be like, oh yeah, but if we get caught, we're only like locked up for one month. And another would be like, it'll be three years, right? So we do have to let them know like, hey, but actually here are the actual fines. And there's a communication component, that education component that's really vital as well to make sure these communities are well burst and they understand the situation that they're putting themselves in. There's definitely a need for increasing or looking at how do we make our fisheries more sustainable at home so that there are stocks of fish available for a more sustainable fishing industry that can allow these fishermen to continue their job and take less risks and not have to be away from their families for so long and have that income that they deserve. And I think there's a lot of innovative technology out there that we should start to apply more confidently to address this problem. And finally, are you optimistic about the future when it comes to poaching and illegal fishing? Are you optimistic or pessimistic? I'm optimistic that we can do a lot with these smaller scale 
you know, coastal fisheries. There's a lot of sustainable fisheries that do happen that we don't talk about as well. Um, and I think we should be talking more about that because that'll also encourage people to buy from those communities rather than constantly buying from, you know, mass-produced kind of larger chains. I'm a little more wary about the commercial fisheries. There are giant boats that are happening offshore in places that we can't see. It's so hard to enforce things in the ocean in general. Even like 30 kilometers off our coastlines, no matter how much wealth you have in a country, it is difficult to monitor. And then imagine when you go beyond the 200 nautical mile exclusive economic zone, which is usually the border for a particular country. And that area, there's a lot of activities happening that most of us don't even know about. As scientists, we need to share the information we have so people can make those better decisions. As governments, governments need to be stepping up and saying, hey, you know what? There's better ways for us to engage with these ecosystems. But I do believe if we come together and we do choose to, humanity is quite an amazing thing. And human beings are amazing. We have amazing capacity. And I do think we can drive change. That was Asha DeVos, and you can find out more about her work on the Bertarelli Foundation's website, marine.science. We say it often on this podcast, but the ocean is really big. And so even though there's nothing to hide behind, it's very easy to be unseen on the ocean once you're away from the coast. So monitoring what's going on out there is hard. One patrol vessel can only be in one place. And often, countries don't have enough resources to cover their entire patch of ocean. But these days, we have the technology to look down on ourselves from above. Because there's a small army of satellites orbiting the Earth that can act as our eyes in the sky. And when you combine that with patrol boats on the waves, maybe you're in with a chance of catching the rule breakers. I spoke with Anna Sanders from Global Fishing Watch about the latest advances in remote sensing technology to help enforce rules at sea. So there's several different types of information that you can use to detect vessels. Um, So with the advent of the AIS system, which is the automatic identification system, which is a beacon on board a vessel. Um, That beacon is is good for monitoring for a vessel to make sure that there's safety at sea. It's a device um, that specifically sends a GPS position to a satellite in space. And then that information is then relayed um, back down to the nation itself into like a command center. But it also is openly available. You can see at the Global Fishing Watch uh, map the activity of those fishing vessels. There's also the Vessel Monitoring System, VMS, and those are specifically for those nationalities have required the vessels to have that system on board. We're trying to make that information more accessible through transparency to help improve compliance and show others that having transparency of data and information is actually valuable to these fishermen. And the AIS systems, this is, this is, um, it's such a great thing when you discover it, because as you say, they are open data. So ships are required to, to carry them. And it's not just fishing vessels. It is just fascinating to see how many ships are coming and going. But let's get back to the fishing. So when you have those two things, you have the AIS, the automatic identification system and the VMS, the vessel monitoring system. What can you do with those two together? Because you're not just looking at them, right? At Global Fishing Watch, you're doing something extra. Yes. So we've actually been able to take those vessel tracks, so the vessel movement itself, and being able to identify using machine learning technology, 
the actual vessel fishing activity. So we can see and actually estimate how many fishing hours a vessel has been fishing for. So whether it's long line fishing or trawl fishing or squid fishing, we actually have a much better estimate of how much fishing is actually occurring at sea. So this all sounds great, but there's a potential flaw with this plan, which is that if a fishing vessel knows they are about to do something illegal and they know where their AIS system is because they put it on their ship, what's to stop them turning it off or giving it to another ship for a bit? Well, that's a that's a great question. What we really like to do is see how we can detect that type of activity. Our research team has actually created an algorithm to be able to detect if a vessel has turned off their AIS system. Often this activity occurs near the boundaries of exclusive economic zones, so that's 200 nautical miles away from the land. But what we can do is we can also see if that vessel has been loitering. And if it's just one vessel loitering, it's possible that there's another vessel without its AIS on. And so we're still able to see potentially half of the picture. Sometimes the fishermen will turn off the AIS on the ship, but they won't turn it off on their gear. And so we can actually track that. And so we can start to see patterns. For example, when I was in the Coast Guard, we had this case where the vessel had AIS on board its high seas drift nets. And it was a very suspicious signal that we were able to detect. And then later on, send aircraft to be able to do an overflight, which then indicated that the vessel was actually um, a high seas drift net vessel. So once you get to the point where these analysts who could be hundreds or thousands of miles away have identified some suspicious activity, you've then got the problem of what to do next. And Global Fishing Watch, you know, you're you're not the police. So what do you do next? Who does deal with the enforcement side of this? Yes. Well, that's why our uh, relationships with other countries and nationalities are so powerful, is that international cooperation and transparency of that data is so important. We can collaborate and work with nation states and providing them unclassified information. And they can then work with their neighboring partner because a vessel may be illegally fishing in one exclusive economic zone and then move to another and come into a port. Well, if one country, like say Cote d'Ivoire, can notify Ghana that this vessel that's come into port has illegally fished, then that's a success. You know, with the advent of technology, many of the wealthy countries have always had these systems. But what Global Fishing Watch has really done has opened this up to other countries that are more vulnerable to illegal fishing to be able to have that information accessible. Why shouldn't it be, you know, in everyone's hands is to be able to to think about this. Traceability is really key um, as well. So being able to think about the markets, you know, where has this fish ultimately come from and has it been caught illegally? Is it something that is sustainable? And so, you know, we also need to demand transparency within the seafood supply chain, as well as insurance. Insurance can ultimately say whether they are actually insured to go out there and fish or not. And these are all levers that we can pull to be able to think about uh, illegal fishing activity. I have to say, I love the idea that you could potentially be sitting in a restaurant and, you know, a fish turns up on your plate and you have, you know, 
a track some tracking information perhaps in the future there'll be some website where you can track back exactly where that fish came from and when it was pulled out of the sea well i've been able to do that <laughs> so i was in a restaurant in sausalito and uh they said oh, the fishing vessel sunshine had caught this specific fish and first of all i looked at it and i said hmm well that's really interesting because that vessel's been <laughs> been in the docks for the last three months and that fish is definitely not in season. So um, yes, you can do it today. And and I think that we all play a part in, in thinking about, you know, the, the type of fish that we eat and, and also where it's come from. And if you're looking ahead, you know, perhaps 10 or 20 years, what's coming down the line? How optimistic are you that these changes, you know, the developments in this technology that are still required, are, are those going to happen really quickly? Are there obstacles in the way? What's coming up in the future? I would say that we have a long ways to go with respect to the regulations, but technology is going to advance so quickly. It's not just the data and information being available, but the smarts behind it. There's many other different avenues that we're currently exploring and hopefully with illegal fishing itself, thinking specifically about what are the new emerging ways? There's going to be fewer and fewer resources in the future. And so therefore, illegal fishing is going to continue to put more and more pressure upon the artisanal fishing activity. How can we make this technology available and accessible to small scale fishing vessels? So those artisanal fishing vessels, approaching it from multiple different angles, I think is is a fantastic way. But but also doing that in collaboration with the countries and helping them improve their regulations is also another key step forward. It's clear that we can't continue with fishing in the way we do now. Our fishing technology and capacity is already way beyond what the ocean can stand up to. It's not just about the numbers of individual species. The ocean is a web of life, and if you take out one or two species, there are significant impacts on the rest of the ecosystem but we need to aim higher than the bare minimum of seeing this as a food supply problem. We need a globally healthy ocean that's rich and diverse and benefits everyone. The ocean is the classic case of out of sight, out of mind. And I really think the biggest thing we can do is to make these realities visible. It's only when we see where fish come from, who fished them, what the standards for those workers were like, and what the business model is that we stand any chance of improving things. We need a huge spotlight on this trade, but without demonising the poorest and most vulnerable people in the system. And it starts with asking questions, because each answer comes with its own little bit of light. So if you're a fish eater, and even if you aren't, start asking some questions and push for some answers. Thank you to Professor Callum Roberts, Dr Asher DeVos and Anna Sanders. Next time on Ocean Matters, we'll be meeting the marine drifters that keep our ocean healthy plankton. What are they and why are they so important for our ocean ecosystems? And would there even be ocean ecosystems without them? I'm Helen Chersky and this is a Fresh Air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. Search for Ocean Matters wherever you get your podcasts and follow or subscribe for free so you never miss an episode.